0: You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today marks uh, the last day of our Easter Tide series we've called Rejoice, Living Out the Joy of the Resurrection. And this joy that we experience in light of the resurrection is not just something that we embrace for 50 days during the year and get back to our other way of living, right? The Christian life is one that is meant to be marked with joy, a joy that's not dependent on our moods or our circumstances, no, but because uh, we get it from someone who is full of joy. And this series has been so formative for me, so I would say if you've been traveling, if you um, uh, haven't been able to be here for, for the whole series, go back to, um, to podcasts or to YouTube and, and listen to some of the things that God has been using our teachers to, to show us in this series. We've been discussing finding joy in God's mission, finding joy in God's presence, finding joy in praising God, and last week we talked about finding joy in abiding in Jesus and now that we are exiting this season of feasting, right, because that's Easter tide season is meant to be one that's marked as celebrating and feasting, we're going to ask the question, what does it look like to carry that same joy into all circumstances, including not just feast, but famine? From feast to famine, what does it look like for us to be people who are marked with joy? Joy in Jesus, joyful in all seasons. Well, I think it's many things, and I think it's one thing, but today we're gonna be talking about the role of gratitude in this journey of being joyful people. What does thanksgiving, what does gratitude do? What's the role of it in allowing us to have joy? And before we do, I just wanna say that this was something that I really felt that uh, God wanted me to talk about today, to talk about gratitude and thanksgiving, but I don't really know why. Because the time that my wife and I have been here I have been astonished at the joyful posture of generosity and gratitude and self-giving that I have experienced in this community. And I'm not just saying that. Like I have legitimately rarely been a part of a group of people who give so joyously, so often, and so lovingly, both in your time, Your resources, your energy, your finances. We are so grateful to be a part of this community. I sat in the back row of this sanctuary last Sunday and watched our church raise $8,500 in one night to send kids to youth camps and on mission. It's incredible. This church is a testament to the generosity and the gratitude that we have in Jesus. So, I don't know why I'm preaching on this today, I just feel like I needed to. but you guys can be here to watch me process through my journey. You can be a support for me. Um, I feel like I'll be very much be preaching to the choir today. Now, you'd think that um, gratitude would be something that would be easy to preach on, but uh, there aren't a lot of scripture passages that focus solely on gratitude. And what I mean by that is not that the Bible doesn't seem to talk about gratitude. What I mean is the Bible is always talking about gratitude. It's woven into everything. Gratitude is kind of just everywhere, all at once in the Bible. Any sort of praise towards God or encouragement offered to people, gratitude seems to be baked into it. When it comes to how we worship God, when it comes to how we interact with one another, in the scriptures, gratitude and thanksgiving are implied everywhere. So to ask, what scriptures could one use to preach on gratitude? Honestly, it's, it's most. <laughs> it's almost all of them. In fact, we have two sacraments as people who follow Jesus that Jesus gave to us to be a part of our liturgy or our forms of worship. We have water baptism and we have the Eucharist or communion. This is the bread and the cup. This is why the bread and the cup, what we call the Eucharist, is at the center of our physical gathering because the Eucharist is at the center of what it means for us to follow Jesus. And the word Eucharist comes from the Greek Eucharistia, which literally means to give thanks. All this is to say, gratitude is implied in the life of the Jesus follower. Gratitude is implied in the life of the Jesus follower. So, I think we need to ask ourselves, if gratitude and thanksgiving seem to be baked into the very nature of the Christian life, what is the source of that ingredient? Where do we get the grain which... Bakes the bread. Where does our gratitude grow? And this is why today we've come to one of the most well-known and most used passages in all of scripture, Psalm 23. Why? The words gratitude and thanksgiving are not even in the text. Well, Psalm 23 is all about how we relate to God and how God relates to us. And understanding how we choose to see God and how God chooses to see us, that's actually going to determine whether or not we experience gratitude, because Psalm 23 is all about this humble acceptance of our weakness and a joyful and willing dependence upon God. So let's get into the text and investigate how this relationship of shepherd to sheep becomes the source of gratitude in our lives. We open right away with some really powerful imagery in the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Some translations say I lack nothing, or there is no lack. Now, we're going to spend actually most of our time on this opening line because the way we choose to see this opening line will interpret how we see the rest of the passage. So this shepherd imagery is so effective, isn't it? It immediately demonstrates this faint reflection of the dynamics between how much greater the creator is than the created ones, and yet how deeply, profoundly, the creator cares for the created ones, right? Because a human being is hundreds of times more complex than a sheep, far more industrious, far more intelligent, far more powerful and resourceful than a sheep, right? Infinitely multiplied is this dynamic between us and God. Some have described that the way to think about this is a three-dimensional being interacting with a two-dimensional world, God is just that much more complex than we are. This is why Jesus needed to come to earth as a man or as a two-dimensional creature, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But sheep are utterly dependent on the shepherd for everything, aren't they? Like everything. They are effectively helpless without their shepherd. I want to show you a short video uh, from Russia of this sheep who got found uh, stuck in a ditch. Okay, so this little Russian shepherd boy, he's trying to pull the sheep out. It looks like it hurts. I wouldn't want to be that sheep, but better out than in, I always say, right? And then, yay, we celebrate, and (laughs) right back in. (laughs) This reminds me of that hymn, Come Thou Fount, right? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is, this is us, right? We have this propensity to wander from the watch of the shepherd, but it never gets us anywhere good, does it? <laughs> no. All right, I want to show you another picture of a particular sheep named Barak. And yes, that is his name, Barak, okay? Yeah, not so funny. <laughs> so this sheep was lost for years, And was finally discovered on the side of the road, practically unable to move. Because sheep don't really have a natural way of shedding their wool. So if they don't have a shepherd, it just accumulates, right? They need the shepherd for literally everything. And this psalm states, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I lack nothing. Some say, I have everything I need. When I think of Barak, I think about the way that I am prone to hoard my resources, right? If I have something, I'm afraid of it being taken away, because I'm afraid that if, I, if it goes, that I won't get it back again. But this is the issue. This assumes that, that I produce the wool for myself alone, that my fleece is mine, and it's there to do with what I will. And that fails to embrace this reality, that anything I provide, I provide for the shepherd to use. It's not mine. See, to me, the fleece does some simple things. It keeps me warm and it makes me look good. But to the shepherd, whose understanding and wisdom is far more complex than my own, in in his power and his skill, the shepherd knows way better than I do what my fleece is capable of. When I entrust my fleece to the shepherd, whose ways are higher than mine, who sees everything that I don't, who is more capable than I, he's able to take my offering and multiply it in ways that I could not have imagined apart from him, right? Now, listen to me. This is not going to be a sermon about offerings and tithes to Red Hills. I want you to know that. I mean, yes, this impacts the way that we give and why that we give. But what we're talking about here is is, uh, not just about what we give to the church. This is a way of understanding who we are in light of who God is. Everything I have belongs to the Lord everything, even the stuff I don't tithe and give, right? I may have grown it. It belongs to me. I have it on me, but God's the one who knows how to actually best use it. If I accept my role as a sheep, I understand that my entire existence is an offering to the Lord. That's why I exist. Romans 8 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Our lives, our worship. I don't bring an offering to God. I am an offering to God. My fleece doesn't really belong to me. I'm a temporary host for the resources that really belong to God. So, what is your fleece? What is it? Is it your money? Yes, but it's so much more. It's not only money, it's our time, it's our energy, it's our intellect, it's our creativity, it's our relationships, it's our resources. Everything that we produce accomplishes more and accomplishes it more effectively when I offer it to the and entrust it to the shepherd. Now, they say that our resources shift depending on our seasons through life, right? One framework that can help us think about this is to break up our resources into three categories, but listen... This is just a framework. It's not all of reality all at once. So just take this as a generality, not as an absolute rule, okay? But typically, there are three categories when it comes to our energy. There's time, energy, and money. Time, energy, and money. And in our first stage of life, we tend to have more time and energy, but not very much money. In our second stage of life, we tend to have a bit more money. We still have energy, but there are more demands on our time. And in our final stage, there's uh, 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 more money, typically, more time, but not as much energy. Again, these are generalities, not absolutes. I know many people who break this mold. But just like all of you, I struggle with wanting to hoard my resources, right? I have a lot of demands on my time in this middle stage of life, so I hoard what little time I have as me time. It's mine to do with what I will, Right? Even if it's not good for me, right? If things are tight financially, I tend to hoard what little I have rather than practice generosity. When I'm tired, I tend to want to retreat away from people, right? We live in this culture of self-care. Listen, I totally get the heart behind it. Totally get it. But I think self-care can sometimes be a socially acceptable way to just be selfish, Now, don't, don't misquote me. Don't do it. Don't mishear what I'm saying. I think it is incredibly important to embody self-love. Okay? That is very important. It's really hard for me to love others the way that I love myself if I can't even love myself, right? It doesn't work. You have to love yourself. But we love ourselves by allowing Christ to love us. And his love is the kind that lays down its life in a way that is sacrificial. If I really love myself, I'm going to choose things for myself which allow me to flourish rather than things that will numb my pain, right? If I really love myself, I'll choose rest over avoidance. If I love myself, I will choose mindfulness over distraction. If I love myself the way Christ loves me, what I choose for myself might not always feel good in the moment or be what I like, but it will be what is good, right? The best way for me to love myself is to allow Christ to love me, and the way that Christ loves me is that he prunes me. He shapes my life in a way that is cruciform, cross-shaped, to match his. Now listen, Jesus rested, Jesus retreated, Jesus feasted, Jesus probably had really good boundaries and a great skincare routine, but he never did anything to avoid or to numb, right? Right? He was always present to his life and his mission, even in his rest. And in our heart of hearts, I think we usually know the difference between selfishness and self-love and self-centeredness and self-care, right? I think we know the difference because we like to hoard our resources for ourselves. We tend to trust ourselves, our own judgment, our own discernment to determine where best we put our stuff and our time and our energy. But the truth is, When we take everything and we entrust it to God, he knows better how to use those resources. And here's the thing. We are invited into this way of living not by someone who is there to con you. This is the hinge point. It's trust. Do we really believe that this shepherd is one who cares deeply for the sheep? Do we really believe that in God, with him, we truly always have everything we need, that we lack nothing? Even if we are in seasons where God has just shaved us down, do we believe that we have everything we need, that God is taking care of us? I quote the Sermon on the Mount all the time because, in my opinion, it might be one of the most important things for us to know as people who follow Jesus. And in Matthew 6, Jesus is trying to inspire people to trust in him. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he continues later, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you drink or about your bodies, what you will wear, for is the life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not store away in barns or sow or reaping it. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed as one of these. If this is how God clothes the flowers who are here one day and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do we see the invitation? He's trying to get us out of a place of fear and scarcity and into a place of trust and love. And here's the problem when we hoard our resources. We end up having more than the next guy, but the very thing that that we are afraid to release and to give up starts to kill us slowly, right? Like Barak, the sheep, We hoard our fleece until it consumes us. And we don't even notice it at first, but over time, the blessing becomes the curse. The thing that we cling to to keep us alive ends up being the thing which kills us. It becomes all consuming. And listen, we all have tendencies to be hoarders, all of us. If it's not with material things, maybe it's with intellectual knowledge, maybe it's with pleasurable experiences, maybe it's with our time. If we seek after those things, they keep us captive. But if we trust in God, we have everything we need. Give it to God. If he wants to take it, that's his call. He's the shepherd. He knows better than I do where things need to go and what I need and what I can handle. And here's the thing, he always grows back to be taken again. And that's his business, not mine. I am simply a steward of what the shepherd needs until he comes for it that's my role. And this is directly tied to our gratitude, right? Because when I think about the spiritual discipline of gratitude, here's what I do. Let me know if you do the same thing. I tend to like list all the things that I'm grateful for that day, right? God, thank you for my warm bed. God, thank you for my hot shower. God, thank you for the food in my stomach. These are all great things. This is all very good and fine and healthy to be grateful for these things. But let me ask you this. Don't you think that our gratitude should not Get lower or higher based on how long that list is? Right? Like if my list happens to be shorter, God, thank you for, wow, the fact that I'm here and that's all you got? Shouldn't our gratitude, then if we have the longest list we've ever had our entire life of all the material things and all the wealth, shouldn't our gratitude? be unaffected by that list because our gratitude is not based upon the gifts it's based on the giver right the prophetess mariah carey said it best (laughs) i don't want a lot for christmas there is just one thing i need okay some of you are like not having that all right move on so let me ask you this, are we operating out of a framework of fear and scarcity, a mindset of fear and scarcity, or are we, af- are we afraid that there isn't enough for me, therefore I must hoard, or are we operating out of a place of trust and love in the good shepherd, that because I am a sheep and he is the shepherd, that no matter what, I have everything that I need. So this is the framework for fear and scarcity. It's built on this lie that there is not enough. And here's what happens. Here's how it manifests. In times of feasting, it looks like pride and entitlement. I've accumulated these things for myself. Look at me. But in times of famine, it's anxiety. It's selfishness. It's competition. And the way that we respond to all of this is idolatry. Everything I have, I have because of me, because I am a god. God. But love and trust, this mindset embraces the truth of Psalm 23, that because I am a sheep and God is the good shepherd, I have everything I need in Christ. And here's what's cool about this framework. In times of feast, it looks like gratitude and generosity. And in times of famine, it looks like gratitude and generosity. And the way that we respond in worship is not idolatry. It says, everything I have belongs to the Lord. I am a steward. The way we understand the psalmist's relationship to God, this paints an image over the rest of the psalm. So let's dig into the rest of it. He leads me beside quiet waters. He caused me to lie down in green pastures. This is the Christ-given self-care. This is real self-love. And this is really important. The Sabbath framework, the Shabbat, defined the Jewish people. Very important. This is the way of rest and relationship. The Bible is full of these really important shepherds all throughout its history, right? Moses was a shepherd for 40 years before he took his shepherd staff to lead lead the Israelites out of Egypt, out of captivity, out of slavery, and into God's promises. And one of the first things that God gifts his people when they exit the promised land is what? Sabbath. In Egypt, they were slaves. Their existence was there for the production of the Egyptian economy. Their identity was to produce. But with God, our identity is in a place of rest with God. That's where we start. Yes, we were made to produce and multiply and to make good things better and more good things. God created us for that. But notice that in the Genesis story, the first full day that humanity has on the planet is what? The day that God rested. This is our starting point. We start from rest and we move towards meaningful work, not the other way around, right? The next verse says, he refreshes my soul and leads me in the right paths for his name's sake. See, I'm often trying to care for myself, but rarely does it refresh my soul, right? Rarely does it give me what I know I need. Submitting to the shepherd allows him to care for me in ways that I could not care for myself. I can become trapped and enslaved in my own solutions, which become my vices, which become my gods. But God wants to refresh my soul. It goes on, he leads me in the right paths for his name's sake. Because when God's people flourish, it's a reflection on him. Not that he's worried about his reputation, but because when we are people that who are with God, good things flow from it because God is good. He will not do anything that is not in keeping with his good character. Do we trust that goodness? Our failure to go where he leads is usually indicative of our failure to believe that God is good. The theologian and author Jackie Hill Perry said this, unbelief doesn't see God as the ultimate good, so it can't see sin as the ultimate evil. It instead sees sin as a good thing, and thus God's commands a stumbling block to joy. So when we run to things that are not good, it's usually because we actually in our heart of hearts believe that that thing is more good than God is. And I fail to see the destructive nature of my own path. I fail to see why jumping in the ditch would be a problem again. <laughs> because I can't see how good God is. So, what are those things that we run to? Is it greed? Is it pleasure? Is it pride? What is that thing, that sinful behavior that you have a hard time putting down? Because that thing is the sign that you believe better than God that you think you have what is best for you more than God. It may fill your wallet, it may give you pleasure, but it will empty your soul. We are incomplete without joy, but a joy of our own making is incomplete without Christ. Because that joy only survives when things are easy, when the list is long, But notice, the psalm now turns from this place of green pastures and quiet waters, this serene scene, to the valley of darkness. It carries the restorative power of rest and abiding and identity into the darkest valley. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The psalmist, he knows this peace of knowing the presence of God that becomes his source of joy. So that even in the lack, he lacks nothing. He says, your rod and your staff, they come from me. The rod was a tool to defend sheep against predators. And the staff was a shepherd's crook that would guide sheep out of difficult situations. And here's the thing. In the darkest valley, in difficult times, we sheep don't need to worry about the wolves. This is twofold. One, you don't need to be afraid of the wolves. And two, the wolves are not your concern. Some of us want to be rams instead of sheep and want to headbutt our problems. We don't put justice in our own hands, right? Let me ask you this, though. Are you the judge of the living and the dead? Nope. Did God give you permission to hate your enemies? Nope. So don't worry, about the, don't worry about the wolves. Just be with the shepherd. His justice will take care of the wolves, right? He will decide what wolves need to become sheep, right? He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, Okay, so now the metaphor shifts almost in a jarring way from shepherds and wolves and sheep to now being a guest at a table. Because here's what happens. Our willful submission grows into something more beautiful. Our relationship evolves from that of sheep and shepherd. And now the shepherd becomes one of the sheep. In John it says, Behold the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world? That three dimensional being takes on the form of two dimensions so that we can be with him. He chooses to relate to us on terms that we can fathom and understand. And he invites us not only into servitude, but into friendship. We see in the Gospel of John, right, that he says, I no longer call you my servants, but I call you my friends. As we enter into this submissive relationship with God, we don't find ourselves underneath the heel of a dominating dictator who's self-absorbed, right? We actually we look to our Lord and teacher to discover that he's been washing our feet. We look to the shepherd to discover that he's become the lamb. We look to a God who lays down his power so that he can serve us. What radical love. So now we find ourselves in this place where the Lord has invited us to his table. He's invited us to celebrate and feast with him, even in the presence of our enemies. What a weird picture, right? Even when the psalmist is faced with enemies, he communes with God. Even in the darkest valley, we don't have to resort to fear and anxious reactivity. Why? Because the shepherd is with us, even in the darkest valley. Baby knows. We always have everything we need, even in the face of hunger and poverty and lack. We are always perfectly safe, even when we face danger and suffering and death. We are always dearly loved, even when we face hatred, abuse, and ridicule. What we have discovered with Jesus, with our shepherd, is this audacious, peace and this gratitude this joy set amidst the most lavish table in the middle of a battlefield (laughs) the same jesus who takes a nap in the middle of a hurricane sets a table before us even in the darkest valley and it's not just a party by the way it is like the party yeah he's not just rich he's like over the top rich But the wealth that he shares with us is not necessarily material or experiential or intellectual. His wealth is one of loving kindness and mercy. We see this image, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It was tradition back then for a host to invite people into their home and anoint their head with oil. Many, many meanings, right? Olive oil was associated with the mercy of God, his healing presence, the light in the world. It was medicinal. It was also aesthetic. Like it would give them this glistening glow through the evening as the candlelight reflected off of their face. What's interesting about this image of generosity, it's, it's a little much, isn't it? Like it's not just like, oh, a little oil on your head. Isn't that nice? It's no, you anoint my head with oil so that so much is pouring over the top of my head that it goes into the cup in front of me and then that cup overflows, it's a bit much, right? Like we're drowning in the mercy of God. The wealth that he offers us, the, the mercy, the, the kindness, it's, it's, it's insane. It's a ridiculous amount of mercy. Even when my bank account is empty, it's not a sign that your love has run out for me. Even when my health is failing, it's not a sign that your love has run out from me. I know you haven't run out of love for me. Even when I've lost everything, my cup in front of me is overflowing with your mercy towards me, right? And then he says, surely your goodness and mercy, some translations say your loving kindness, your lasting love, pursue me all the days of my life. This language of pursuit in the Hebrew was usually reserved to like enemies hunting down opponents like predators. So in the same way that I am being hunted by people who are my enemies, I am being hunted by God and His loving mercy. It's too much. We're being drowned in olive oil. The boat is sinking with how many fish He's put on it. So, guess what? The only thing we have left to do is give thanks. When we come to understand, even in the faintest way, the kind of love and mercy that is offered to us, it's overwhelming. It sinks the boat, right? To fully grasp the glory of the cross is not possible. We cannot even begin to fathom the galactic statement of generosity that is the cross. So when we behold the shepherd who became a lamb so that we could come to the table, we behold the extreme hospitality of the cross to which no answer is sufficient. There is no exchange of goods that will balance the scales. It's too much. So all there is left to do is give thanks. Which is why when we come to the bread and the cup and we remember in remembrance of him, his body broken, his blood spilled, we literally, as we eat it, give thanks. We Eucharistia, we give thanks. There's a wealth of love and mercy That we ingest every time we come back to the table. And in this way, the weak can say, I am strong. The poor can say, I am rich. Not because of what I have done, but because of what God's love has done for me. And for this, I give thanks. We're gonna spend just three minutes in quiet reflection. I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you during this time. Express to him, to the Holy Spirit, your gratitude, and allow him to speak to you. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here, and we say thank you. Thank you.